just raise your hand. Tim is, Brother Tim is ready to give one to you. Let's do this as quickly as possible. Come on up front, front if you will, please, Tim, and then um, just see whose hands are up. We're excited about uh, Disciple U for 2011. It's the most aggressive curriculum we've ever embarked upon. I think we're teaching actually 23 courses this year. Part of the reason is because we've divided the year into quarters, and some of those quarters are even divided in half, and there are actually six weeks courses. What I really want to draw your attention to is the top track on the left. It's called Basics. I think we embarked upon this track a year or two ago, at least for sure last year. It's designed to be evangelistic throughout the whole year. It repeats itself at the middle of the year. And uh, the reason I'm drawing your attention to this now is because there's only one week left for you to prayerfully and earnestly consider who you might invite to take that class uh, for evangelistic purposes. If you could um, even sit with such a person. Last year, we believe there were some conversions that came out of this endeavor. So I'm just earnestly, I'm pleading with you, pleading with you to give up the luxury of some of these other classes if someone would be willing to come as long as you sat with them. Make every effort at all at all possible to uh, bring someone to that class. It, it starts with two ways to live, and then uh, Brother Jeff will complete that with Christianity Explained. Now, the next track on growth is also for very young Christians, just for starters, Christian living just for starters. And then come the courses that are generally more suitable to those who've been Christians for a while. So uh, the course descriptions on the back are only of the first quarter, only of the first quarter. Uh, later, we'll be giving you all of the course descriptions for all of the courses. So please uh, know next week where you want to, which class you want to attend. There will be directions available as you enter the church building for each of these classes and where they're meeting. So. I apologize for the time I took, but this is critical, and we're hoping to see wonderful results from it. Now, I want to ask you some questions. Why are we not more passionate about evangelism? Why are we not more driven, more compulsive, more bold, less fearful, more sacrificial, more innovative, more obsessed, more persevering, more fruit-bearing in our evangelism. I'm burdened about this, and I want to set a vision before us for the year 2011. And I want to put my finger on a problem that I think we all have and what I think we can and ought to do about it. Now, maybe you don't think you have a problem, and maybe you don't have a problem, but I do. I'm frequently cold of heart. I'm lethargic. I'm sometimes intimidated. Imagine that, a man who makes his life preaching the gospel, intimidated about sharing it. 
I am, in fact, guilty of what we would call in this assembly hyper-Calvinism, going beyond the truth of scriptures concerning the sovereignty of God and just concluding that I don't have to do anything, God's going to take care of this. Don't be nervous. Well, I want to work my way backward in explaining what I'm sure is going on with me and what I strongly suspect is going on with you. I agree with the statement that goes something like this. You can't commend what you do not cherish. Let me just qualify that a little bit. You certainly can't earnestly commend what you do not earnestly cherish. If I felt more deeply about the worthiness of God to be worshipped, to be known, to be loved, to be obeyed, to be served, to be trusted, and I do believe that I genuinely see his worthiness for all of those things, but if I felt more deeply about them, what difference would that make? What if my present sense of God's worthiness to be worshipped, known, loved, obeyed, served, and trusted were ten times as great as it is right now, do you think I would be just as cold, just as lethargic, just as intimidated and unimaginative and indolent as I am presently? Now, before you answer that question, I want to ask you another question just for the purpose of illustration. I love my wife. I truly do. I love her dearly. We just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary. That puts us way up there with most people in this congregation. And I care for her, and I want to serve her, and I want to speak well of her. But what if she'd like this? What if I loved her ten times more than I presently love her? How do you think that would affect our marriage? Okay, you see my point? I'm still working backward. And this is what I'm saying about us. I'm saying that if we would be showing by our lives and words more people the glory of God, his infinite worthiness to be known, worshipped, loved, trusted, obeyed, and served, if we possessed a deeper and greater affection for him, if we cherished him more, if we treasured him more, if we loved him more, what difference would that make in our evangelism? So follow my reverse progression. I'm working backward here on something. I'm saying to us that more commending of Christ and the gospel to lost sinners depends upon more cherishing this Savior and this gospel. Let me use some different words. More showing who Jesus is, and by that I mean speaking about him and spreading the gospel, depends on the effect of more savoring of Jesus. That's kind of a piper word, as I recall. He even has a book on that, seeing and savoring Jesus. It's a good word, though. When we eat things that we really like, we don't want to just quickly swallow them. We like to turn them about in our mouths and enjoy the taste and savor that which we're so enjoying. And I'm saying that more showing who Jesus is depends on the effect of more savoring who Jesus is in our hearts, finding him increasingly precious 
to our souls. So greater showing depends on greater savoring. But what will produce greater savoring? I'm still working backwards. The answer is a greater seeing, a greater seeing of the glory of God, a greater understanding of what makes God so wonderful, what makes our Savior so glorious, what makes the gospel so precious. We cannot cherish something we do not see as wonderful and glorious. Another illustration, if I'm in management of a company and I become aware of a supervisor in my area of responsibility that is just way beyond the ordinary in his giftedness and his skill set, and I see how valuable he could be to our company if we would just promote him to an upper-level management position. And I'm so persuaded of this that I want to sell him, if you will. I want to sell this idea to the board of directors. What am I going to have to do? What are you going to have to do if you're that person in management and you want to see someone advance. Well, I'm going to have to help them, the board of directors, see, understand, and perceive the value I have come to see in this supervisor. My commendation of him will be based upon or caused by how much I cherish his value to the company. And how much I cherish his value to the company will be in exact proportion to how much I value or see the quality in this person. So, I'm going to take what I see if I'm in upper management. I'm going to take what I see and cherish about Mr. Smith and on the grounds of what I see and cherish, I'm going to commend him to the board. I'm going to try to get them to see what I see and to feel what I feel and to elevate him, as it were, into a new and exalted position. You understand the illustration? Isn't that exactly what you would do? So, to make what I'm trying to establish here for us this morning unmistakably clear, let me put it like this. What I'm saying about our evangelism and our missions should work just like this in our lives. And if I'm right, and I'm sure I'm right, this is what will help explain why we are relatively indolent. Maybe you're not guilty. I'm guilty. This will explain why we are not adequately commending our God, our Savior, and our gospel it's because we're not as passionate about it as we ought to be. We're not driven, and we're not as fearless as we ought to be. And the reason, again, is that we do not adequately cherish our God and our Savior and our gospel. I want to quote for you a wonderful statement made by Jonathan Edwards in his miscellanies. These are his words. So God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. In communicating himself to their hearts, that's number two, and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. You following, Edwards? God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by 
It's being rejoiced in. Now, that's a really important statement. I'm going to read it again. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, or we could say understood cognitively, but in its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only saw it. His glory in them, received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart, God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies, this is the last sentence, he that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. That's 18th century language. That's a little complex, isn't it? You know what Edwards is saying? He's saying that the person who sees God's glory doesn't bring nearly as much glory to God as the one who also loves what he sees and delights in it and cherishes it. And I would submit to you that the people of Heritage Baptist Church see a lot of the glory of God because we are rightfully a theological church. We'll never apologize for that. One of the classes being taught this year is the attributes of God. And we're teaching it on this premise that the greatest pleasure that a human being can come to know is the pleasure of knowing and loving God. So we're going to study theology the rest of our lives, and we're going to study theology throughout eternity, and it's going to thrill our souls. So we're very theological at Heritage, and that's good. And we don't apologize, and we don't want to move away from it. But here's the problem for many of us, and I just want you to search your own soul with regard to this question. Do you feel as much wonder and glory and love and delight as you ought to feel in proportion to what you know. Is your knowledge of God something like this? It's just huge over here in comparison to how you feel about God and how much you cherish Him. Is there some equity between the degree to which you cherish God and the degree to which you understand God? And I submit that one of the biggest problems that I have and I suspect we have is that we don't cherish Him to the degree of our knowledge. And the reason we don't adequately cherish our God and Savior and gospel is because we don't adequately see the glory of our God and Savior and gospel. So what this comes down to is this, seeing, savoring, and showing the glory of God in that order. If you saw the title of the bulletin, that's exactly what it said. You know what I did today? I brought a little illustration. I'm not big on this kind of thing, but I hope it's helpful. I want you to see this. This is the order. First, we must see the glory of God. And then by his grace, we must savor that glory. And if we truly see and savor it, we're not going to be able to help but show it. That's the order. Is that complex? And I'm saying we have a lot of knowledge here, 
And that's good. And we, but we want even more knowledge. We want to see more of the glory of God. But we want to see it in such a way that God, the Holy Spirit, enables us to savor it and delight in it and glory in it. And if we really do, this is the point of the sermon, if we really do savor these things, I don't think we're going to be able to keep from showing it. I think it'll be impossible. The man who's madly in love with his fiance just talks about her all the time, and vice versa. Isn't that natural? And that's what I believe is part of the challenge each of us faces. So then, how do I establish this? I want to demonstrate this little theology by turning you to three texts of Scripture. Long introduction, I'll admit. Future preacher boys, don't usually take that long. I want you to turn your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 15. And I want you to see a principle come out of this. Matthew 15. And I'm going to go ahead and move these just so that I don't knock them and then there will be a distraction. Matthew 15. I want you to notice with me verses 8 and 9. Fifteen, eight, and 9. Jesus is speaking. And he's just called in verse 7 the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. And he's telling them that Isaiah was describing them prophetically when he said, verse 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here's what comes out of that text. This is all I want to show you. I want to have you observe with me that the essence of worship is affection. Affection. And not action. It's first and essentially internal and not first and essentially external. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, these people are good with their lips, but bad with their hearts. They lack genuine affection, and therefore their worship of me is in vain. That's the first thing. There's much more to be seen in that text, of course. But, but surely there's not less to be seen than this, that the essence of worship is first an affection toward God. Now, obviously, it is based on an affection that grows out of understanding and seeing. And so I want to turn you to my second text. So I really started in the middle of my three uh, illustrations. Now, I want you to turn quickly to John chapter 4 and notice verse 23 with me. Again, the Lord Jesus is speaking. He's talking to the woman at the well. You remember the story. And he says to her, verse 23, the hour is coming. By the way, we live in that hour now. And is now here. It began then. We're in it. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I just want to emphasize for the moment the word truth. There is no spiritual worship that is not based on truth. Truth is propositional. 
We don't legitimately feel anything toward God if it is not rooted in and based upon an understanding of who he is, according to his self-revelation. We are pursuers of truth at Heritage. I'm saying what I said earlier in a little different way. Earlier I was talking about being theological. We are truth-driven. We are word-driven. We are not capable of understanding who God is by our own minds. We cannot find God with our own minds. We cannot find God apart from our minds, but those minds must be enlightened and informed by His self-revelation. And so we are obsessed with truth. We are preoccupied with truth. So the affection that is more than outward must be rooted in and based upon truth. Right affections for God must be rooted in right thinking about God. And now I have one more text. And now I'm going to skip all the way back over to your right, if you remember. First we have to see. Then we have to savor. And finally, we need to show. And I just want to show you that Jesus wants us to show. Turn in your Bibles to back to Matthew chapter 5. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And notice what he said in verse 16. Matthew 5 and verse 16. Each of these texts record the words of our Savior. In the same way, referring to his little illustration about not covering up a lamp, but putting it on a stand so that the light will be disseminated. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What we come to know about God and what we come to cherish about God must eventually manifest itself. It must show itself. It must go into show and tell. But you see the order. First, truth. Second, affections. Third, actions. First, seeing. Secondly, savoring. And thirdly, showing. And this is what I believe is what will help us. And we have to sort of figure out, what is my greatest need? And I don't think we can just say my greatest need is to savor better what I already understand. We should say that. But we also should just get down on our knees before God and have the courage and the guts, if you will, to pray with Moses, Lord, show me your glory. He prayed that. That's a wonderful prayer. That's a prayer that God must answer. There are some things God has to do. He has to glorify himself. And when we ask him to show us his glory... He cannot turn that request down. And for us to ask him to show us his glory is to ask him to reveal to our understanding more and more truth about himself and what makes him so wonderful. And I want to encourage you in the year 2011, spend more time 
praying on your knees that God will show you his glory. But as soon as you're done praying, open the Bible. Read. Think. Study. Pray. Think. Study. Pray some more. What we will find is that God will show us more of his glory and and we need to say that God, I don't, I don't want just more knowledge. I want more affection. I think we're afraid of affection as, as Reformed Baptists. We tend to be because to us affection seems like emotion. But we shouldn't be afraid of emotion either, because God made us emotional beings and has chosen to reveal Himself in emotions. It's emotionalism that we want to fear, but not emotions. Truth is designed to produce affection and emotion. In fact, in a sense, it's the end. He doesn't want us just to know. He wants us to feel. And then out of that feeling and out of that affection, he wants us to act. Let me draw this all to a close. And I don't want to give you a false hope. It's not like real fast. It's not in the next five minutes. It's more like in the next hour. Uh, No, it's not going to be that long. Dear people... I need to make this clear. I don't want us to be moved by a sense of guilt merely or primarily about our indolence and our fear. We should feel guilty about indolence and fear. Those are sad realities, and they are sinful realities. But I want you and I want us to see the inferiority of such motives to be more assertive and more aggressive and more passionate. Their motives, but they're inferior. How much better it would be if we were moved by a deep and profound love for our Savior because we see Him. We are those people. I won't turn you to the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 and following. We are those people who once didn't see The God of this world had blinded our minds, lest we should see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. The the same God who said, let there be light, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We have become seers. And what I'm suggesting is how much better of a motive for getting bolder in our evangelism, more innovative and more compassionate, more driven, how much better of a motive would it be for us to to do this because we just what we're seeing is so good and so beautiful and so wonderful we just can't be quiet about it we can't be quiet about it isn't that a far superior motive for evangelism and missions i'm not saying there's no sin inwardly involved here there is i've already said that but what i'm saying is that we need to see the sin beneath the sin Okay, you say the sin is fear, the sin is indolence. Good. But what's underneath it? What lies beneath it? The sin beneath fear, the sin underneath indolence, is the sin of not cherishing or loving Christ as we ought. If you must be moved by guilt, and you choose to be moved by guilt, which is not necessarily wrong in some respect, then be moved by the guilt of not loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be guilty about that. You know how I almost started the sermon today? I really toyed with this. I thought, I can't do that. 
I almost began by saying to you, brothers and sisters, I have a serious confession to make. One that no pastor should ever have to make. One that should send me to hell. One that is immoral in its nature. One that has become crippling to my life. What would you have thought? I bet it would have gotten real quiet in here. But then what would you have thought if I went on to say that my sin had nothing to do with sexual immorality, but that it was in one sense worse than committing adultery? What would you have thought then? (coughs) Excuse me. What would you have thought if then I said to you something like, well, I'm going to tell you what I've done. I'm going to tell you what I'm guilty of. And then I paused for a long, uncomfortable period of time and finally found the courage to say to you, I am guilty of the impurity, of the immorality, of not loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that my lack of loving God in such a way and my lack of cherishing Him has led me to be reticent and fearful and indolent in sharing the gospel. Would that approach have caused you to see the seriousness of not savoring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? It should. This gives us, dear people, something to repent of. We're going to be moved by guilt, and we do need to be moved by guilt sometimes. Then let's feel the guilt of not loving God the way he deserves to be loved. Let's feel the guilt and the great need we have for a greater love for our Savior and a greater cherishing of that which we commend and a greater savoring of that which we have come to understand. A greater seeing of God's glory so that we can have a greater savoring of God's glory so that we will have a more energetic showing of God's glory. This is what I want for Heritage Baptist Church in 2011. This is what I want for myself. How broad and how sweeping would the effect of this be in our lives individually and corporately? How different would your life be this year? See if you agree with me on this. How different would your life be this year if God gave you a greater and greater glimpse of his glory? If you began to see more and more of what makes him and his gospel so precious, what if we became transfixed upon his glory? I like that word. I had to look it up to be absolutely sure. And I, I knew what it meant. And I was glad to be affirmed. Listen, you know what it means to be transfixed? It means to be rendered motionless for a moment, for a period of time, stunned by seeing something that is amazing beyond imagination. That's what transfixed means, to be awestruck, to see something and say, I can't take my eyes off of this. This is too beautiful. 
fact, you are moved to do something. That's my vision for us for 2011. What difference would it make in the way you lived if you became transfixed with the beauty and the glory of God and Christ and the gospel? What difference would it make in the way that you treat your wife, the way that you treat your husband, the way you relate to your children? What difference would it make with regard to the use of your time? What difference would it make with regard to what you talk about most of the time? What difference would it make with regard to you turning your eyes away from vanity, with regard to finding the courage to share the gospel? with regard to inviting sinners and lost friends to join you in attending a class called Two Ways to Live. Exploring Christianity, one that will be taught later, the world we all want. What difference would that make in your desire to attend more and more on the means of grace that are provided here at Heritage Baptist Church? Now, I want to be careful here because um, we talked about this in our elders meeting. And we have been helped by you. By the way, thank you so much again for responding to the questionnaire, how helpful it was to us. Humbling, but helpful. All of us were humbled. And the Lord blessed our elders retreat. We had a wonderful time. The Lord was there to help us. But we, re- we realize that there are aspects to life at Heritage that are challenging and difficult, particularly if you have a young, growing family. And we are determined to think creatively and responsibly to how we can help you in that regard. So what I'm about to say in no way should be interpreted as well. I see they don't give, give a hoot about that. Now, listen to me. But, but there's another side of the coin, and I, I know you know that and you believe that in your heart. But listen. What difference would it make to you if you were transfixed with the glory of God with regard to the means of grace? Not talking about when you can't and you're just exhausted. Understood, okay? That's the last time I'm going to say that. I'm with you on that. It's not a guilt trip. But what difference would it make if and when you could come to benefit from the means of grace if you were more transfixed with the glory of God? Prayer meetings, care groups, the Lord's Supper, finding more time for your devotions. What difference would it make in our corporate worship? What difference would it make in our focus upon the Word being preached and taught? What difference would it make in the energy with which we sing and the joy with which we sing and the volume with which we sing? What are you trying to do? Just get us to sing louder? Yes. Yes. But not just so that you can say louder. I've been going through the Psalms for three years straight now. I'm reading other things as well. And making notation of all of the Psalms that exhort us to sing praise to God and sing praise to God and sing praise to God. And all the Psalms that speak about sing to Him. Sing to the Lord. To the Lord. All of the psalms that speak about singing a new song, all of the songs that speak about singing loudly, you would be surprised. All of the psalms that speak about shouting to the Lord. What do you want? Chaos at heritage? No. But affections. I am not offended when one of my fellow pastors occasionally in the midst of a song that we're singing together is so overcoming that he says, Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah! We shout about everything. 
except the glory of our salvation. We're so afraid that we might look like a charismatic. God wants our hearts. God wants our emotions. God wants our affections. And God wants our bodies to show it. Beginning with our faces and our eyes and our countenances. And yes, perhaps with a raised hand if it's not ill-motivated. One of the psalms that I'm memorizing says that we are to sing to God with loud shouts of joy. Loud shouts of joy, yes. Invariably, when we are excited and thrilled and overcome and momentarily exuberant, you know what we do? We shout. We say things like, yes! We jump! I'm not encouraging jumping during our services, but I am encouraging emotion, God-given emotion and affection. I don't think our problem is that we're going to be too demonstrative. I think our problem is that we are a part of a culture that, by its very nature, leads us to be quite restrained about these things. But at least, at least, we're all in agreement on this. God, give me the heart. Give me the affections. Give me the emotions that Jesus spoke of. I want there to be real heart in my worship. What a difference would it make if we were transfixed with regard to our joy and our exuberance, our countenances, and so forth. You know what my problem is with regard to the Great Commission, folks? I haven't even talked about the Great Commission, but that's really what this is about, evangelism and mission. I'm going to tell you what my problem is with the Great Commission. It's the Great Commandment. So what are you talking about? When you put it this way, then, it's the greatest commandments. What is the greatest commandment? It isn't the Great Commission. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And I submit to you, dear people, that if we love God more and more with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, we would find ourselves going into all of the world, starting with Owensboro, To commend the one we so cherish. That's my problem. I don't love the Lord as I ought. Because of remaining sin, I love myself too much. It's all about my kingdom come. I've often thought that if I write another book, I think I'm going to entitle it My Kingdom Come. Studies in the meditations on the crippling effects of remaining sin, the sin. If the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, what do you think the greatest sin has to be? Not loving the Lord your God with all your heart. And I think I should sometime do this and show that what we've done is we've reversed the Lord's Prayer. It's my God who art in my own being. May my name be special. May my kingdom come and my will be done on earth, starting in this home, as God's will is done in heaven. Give me this day my, my, 
My problem with regard to evangelism carrying out the Great Commission is that I'm way too much in love with myself, and I'm way too much about bringing glory to me. I want my kingdom to come. And I have to deal with this. I had to pray about this on the way to church today. This is just a confession, and I know my fellow pastors would share this, every single one of them. Every time we preach, we have to wrestle with, what are you, what are you really about? What do you really want? Come on, come on, be honest. Be honest. Don't give me that. I want God to be glorified. Okay, you do. Is that all? No. I want accolades. I want affirmation. I want, Pastor, that was a great sermon. It's just all garbage it's in our hearts. There's so much of that in all of us, and that's what keeps me from loving my sheep the way I really want to love my sheep. Dear people, let me tell you what I want for myself, and then I am done. This is what I want for you in 2011, but I'm just going to speak for myself for a second. You know what I want? I want to be so transfixed with the beauty of our God and Savior in the gospel that I become spontaneously bold. You know what I want to become? I want to become a fanatic. I do. I want to get out of bounds. I want to become obsessed. I want to become radical. I want my fellow pastors to have to come to me in an elders meeting and say, Ted, we love you, but... You're way out of bounds, man. You've lost it. You just you've become radical. You're making God's people think that that's what everybody needs to be. That's what I need. I need that. I want to overcorrect. Right now, I want to overcorrect and then have my fellow elders bring me back where I need to be, because that's where I that's where my great needs are. I want to become unbalanced. I'm sick and tired of being so balanced. I want to become like an Arminian. What? I do. I want to have a Calvinistic head and what sometimes can legitimately be described as an Arminian heart. I want to witness like if I didn't, people might go to hell. I want to witness like if I didn't, it might in part be my fault. That God might hold me accountable. That he might view me as kind of a watchman on the tower who didn't warn of the approaching enemy. That he might say, look at your hands, there's blood on those hands. Did you know, dear people, that the more you pray, the more things tend to happen? That doesn't sound like the sovereignty of God. It is. Did you know that the more faith you have, generally speaking, the more answers to prayer. If you don't know that, then please read some biographies. Did you know that the more witnessing you do, the more people tend to get saved? Did you know that? Oh, yes. That's absolutely true. And I'm personally tired of our church growing almost exclusively by transfers and by birth. Thank you, all you new people that have been coming. We love you. We're so glad you're here. You're going to strengthen this church. We need your gifts. So in no way am I speaking disdainfully of the newer folk that have been coming. 
thank you. We thank God for you. We, we do appreciate growth that comes to us from transfers. But let me just say something to all of you that have been here for since the, the war between the states. <laughs> we need to be growing by conversions. In the year 2011, we need to see 20, 30, 40 people get saved in this community and stand in the baptistry behind me and confess their faith. And in order for that to happen, guess what? We're all going to have to become more evangelistic and outgoing and passionate. We need to find the heart that enables us to pray what we sometimes sing. And I like this song. Ooh, but it's contemporary. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition to know and follow hard after you. What if God did that for heritage? I think we would find that we're not so fearful, not so lazy, not so cold-hearted. We would be cherishing what we have come to see we would be savoring what we have come to see and showing it and commending it. It starts with seeing God, savoring God, and showing God. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have opened our once blinded eyes to see things that we never saw before. All we saw was this world and our own pursuits as worth striving for. <clears throat> but you graciously opened our eyes, the eyes of many of us, to see beauty in the face of Christ. We thank you. And now, Lord, we need help to savor that so much that we become transfixed. And then out of that, we are energized to speak of you and to commend you. Help us, Lord, change this church, starting with its pastors. None of us love you as you deserve to be loved. Lord, uh, I want to pray for this congregation and for myself what I recommended. Would you do for us what you did for Moses? Would you show us in 2011 more and more and more of your glory? And would you, in 2011, enable us by your grace to love you more and more and more with all, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because, God, you deserve to be worshipped, to be known, to be trusted, and to be served. And we are so privileged to commend you and our Savior and the gospel. Help us. Lord, help any who are here today unconverted to... Understand that they are unrighteous before your holiness and your justice, and they're condemned to hell unless they turn and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died in the place of sinners and satisfied your justice. Give them grace to call upon the name of the Lord, to see that they need an atonement for their sins, and to believe that you will keep true your promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.